Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome back to the Rational Face Podcast, the best podcast on the blabbernacle. I am your host, Brian Dillman. Today we are back with another part in the Ask the Mormon Sex Therapist series with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. In this episode, we begin talking a little bit about Jennifer's upcoming Valentine's Day sale, which you should all go check out over at her website. And we start off with some ideas about how to spice up your sex life, and then Jennifer fields some questions. Uh, One is represented by several inquiries relating to dealing with physical ailments or physical changes that often come with age, such as erectile dysfunction. The other question that she fields is how a couple might manage older children in the home, because for many it can be quite distressing and uh, mood-changing when you realize that your children probably know what you're doing when you lock the door. So with that brief intro in hand, let's jump right to it. We are back again with Laurel and Jennifer, another, the first... Ask the Mormon Sex Therapist for 2016. Woo-hoo. So this is exciting. It's been a while. It's been like two months. Yeah. Uh, we've got a backlog of questions. We're going to ask a couple more than usual. Some of them are uh, low-hanging fruit, if you will. <laughs> um, some things that are coming up. Jennifer is going to have another sale, Valentine's sale, on her site. So all are, is it all the courses or is it Art yeah. of Desire, all of them? All the courses are 20% off for okay. Valentine's Day, starting, I think, February 1st through the 14th. So, yeah. So that is definitely a gift you can give to yourself, your spouse, your as a couple, whatever. Um, also, maybe before we get started into the lesson, since it is, is does Valentine's Day have a season? Valentine's season, heart season, mm-hmm. <laughs> the season of love. So a lot of the, a lot of questions that we get um, are, how do you spice things up? And if you go to episode three of this series, or part three, I guess of this series, that addresses some of that, uh, some of those ideas. But uh, Jennifer, off the top of your head, what are some of the ways that um, people can, people that have been in a marriage for a while, things have kind of gotten routine, how Mm -hmm. do you spice up the love life, the sex life at Mm -hmm. that point? Well, I mean, there's a lot of things people can do. I think the bigger challenge is whether or not people actually want to do them. I mean, people like the idea of things being spicier and more exciting, but are often slow to want to really introduce novelty or take risks in their sexual relationship. Not so much because of the morality issues of it, although that can sometimes be an anxiety for people, like whether or not it's okay to try new things or to, um, you know, to role play or do something like that. But more because the challenge of bringing more of yourself into your sexual relationship or exposing more of yourself or exposing your ideas or your fantasies. And surprisingly, even though you would think that in marriage, because you've made a commitment to be with someone for eternity and things should at least ostensibly be very, very safe, that in fact, partly what kills sexual desire in marriages is that people tend to dumb their sexual relationships down. They take fewer risks. Um, They expose less. They actually take comfort in the routine. You want your relationship to feel safe. And so we want that stability, but then often we can kill 
the the excitement in the marriage because we are sort of pushing too much towards stability. So it's not hard to introduce novelty. The real issue is whether or not you have enough courage to. And so, you know, in a fair sex, people will do all kinds of things or uh, that they would never do with the mother of their children, for example, because of this issue of how much exposure they can tolerate with someone that they're in a long-term relationship with as opposed to someone that they have very minimal investment with. So novelty is always an aphrodisiac. Novelty is what inspires eroticism. And of course, you think when you're with the same person, novelty becomes a challenge. But there's lots of ways. There's, there's, there's horizontal or lateral novelty, and then there's vertical novelty. So that is to say you can... You can have lateral novelty by just sort of doing different things. That is to say, you can have sex in a new setting, you can have a new outfit, you can try a new position, you can express a new fantasy. Um, you know, there's lots of ways to just, you know, go to a hotel for the weekend. There's lots of, you know, have sex in a different place. There's a different part of the house. There's a lot of ways to just try something new. Um, and uh, one book I might recommend is 101, I think it's 101 Nights of Great Sex, I think is the title, but I can give you the actual title to link to. But it's a book that allows you to, every day you can actually tear open a different page and it gives you a new idea of what you could try. And there's a his section and a her section and, you know, you can't see the other person's uh, section. And, you know, for some people, this is just a great set of ideas for others. It's like, oh my gosh, I could never do that. <laughs> but there are lots of ideas there that for committed uh, spouses to engage in with one another. Um, so there's that kind of novelty. And then there's what I would call vertical novelty, which is to engage in more depth with the person that you're with. And really, when we marry someone, we have partnered ourselves with an entirely different human being from us that has all kinds of depth and um, novelty within them, all kinds of things that we don't know about our partners. And yet, as I said initially, we really flatten our spouses very quickly. We we turn each other into caricatures um, into what we want to assume our spouse is rather than who they fully are. And that basically robs us of the, the excitement that comes in the depth of really knowing somebody who's completely separate from you. And, you know, it's not so, you don't, you know, you can get novelty not by having a new partner, but by seeing your spouse through new eyes you know, seeing them as somebody that doesn't belong to you, not that you are entitled to, but as another person whose sexuality does not exist for you, but their sexuality exists as a part of them and that you're not entitled to their sexuality, um, but their sexuality is something that they bless your life with uh, out of their choice. And really seeing them this way can really create enormous excitement and the added pleasure of the depth and the long-term nature of the relationship, that it allows you to really have the most meaningful and profound experiences through sexuality when you can couple those two pieces. But it requires more 
tolerance for discomfort on our part or tolerance for anxiety and exploration of our sexuality and of another person. So, you know, here's the quick answer, which is think of something you'd be terrified to tell your partner tonight about your sexuality and tell them <laughs> something that you want. <laughs> if you want to add spice, do that. Um, one of the exercises I give women is to write down all the things that their sexuality desires. And it's not what they want. It's what their sexuality wants. And to just write it down without filtering it. And the challenge of even just sharing one of those things uh, can be really challenging. And I'm not minimizing of that. I'm not, you know, I'm, it, it can be hard to be willing to tolerate that kind of exposure. So the one thing I'll say about women's sexuality, we have this fantasy in our culture that women's sexuality is limited relative to men's. And it's just simply not true. Women are just pickier about who they're sexual with, but it, but women have infinite, I mean, women have the complexity and depth of women's sexuality, both anatomically, it's complex and, and deep, and, and emotionally it is. And so to really know a woman or to really know her sexuality, the complexity of it, the variations in which the ways that women, women's fantasies, men's fantasies are much more straightforward. Naked woman. Okay. I desire her. Okay. Women's uh, eroticism is much more um, nuanced and complex and varied. And, um, and so really even just focusing more on your wife and what she desires and who she is and making room for her sexuality to be knowable. I mean, many men, I think, flatten their wives into sort of less sexual than them as a way of managing their own anxiety about sex. And they're managing their anxiety about their sexual adequacy and their adequacy as a person overall. And they do it without really acknowledging this to themselves. And wives will go along with it, um, partly because of the way that we're enculturated, but really then the woman sort of dumps herself down, looks like she's sort of sexually incompetent <laughs> relative to the man, when really she's sitting on a lot of eroticism that she doesn't dare to show up with and he doesn't dare to know. But that's for another discussion. <laughs> so anyway, I'm talking too much for your simple question. <laughs> so spicing things up is, uh, it's not really, well, I guess it, it can be stopping off at the novelty store or something like that, but it also can be something that takes more time. What you're describing, um, sounds a lot like, uh, is it snarch? Snarch's differentiation. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes. where you're separate, individual you develop so that you're not codependent and you're separate individuals but that also allows you to have a deeper connection because like That's you right. said it's not a caricature or a you know an imagined personality but a real personality and so it develops right. the separateness but also That's more right. intimacy That's right. Interesting. Okay, so there you go folks. Uh <laughs> Laura, let's jump into our our questions. The first one is kind of a not not a real hard one, not a real heavy one. So let's start off there. Our uh, first question here says, first off, I love this podcast series with Dr. Fife. 
I've been married for 21 years and Temple married for that time as well. My wife is a wonderful, loving person, my best friend. I think we have a pretty healthy sex life for the most part because we talk with each other and communicate. I have learned tons from these podcasts, though, and bought my wife the Art of Desire course as well. My question deals with children. We have three children. When they were young, of course, they were a distraction to sex, but when they got out of bed, they were easily put back in bed and they had no idea they had been interrupting anything. Now that they are older, they are sometimes up doing homework and such after we go to bed. Now when they come to the door and it's locked, they have a pretty good idea what's going on. It's pretty embarrassing for my wife, not to mention kills the moment for her. For me, it's frustrating because I have likely spent a good part of the day working up to a good rendezvous that evening and all my efforts are now spoiled. Do you have any suggestions for those with kids to not let children kill your sex life? Okay, that's a good question. I think that the fundamental issue in this question is just the idea that kids being aware that parents are sexual would somehow be a bad thing. Now, of course, you don't want your kids to be in on your sexual relationship, okay, because that would not be good for kids. But I actually am of the position that it is good for kids to know that their parents are sexual beings and are happy um, sexually with one another. It's a way of teaching your kids what healthy sexuality looks like. Um, not because they know any specifics, right? You keep it private, but it's okay for them to be well aware that their parents like each other, that their parents are sexual, and that even though kids don't want to really know about it, there is a comfort in knowing that their parents really like each other and that there's a that sexuality is really as good and sacred and so on as they hear about at church, <laughs> meaning that their parents think it's good enough that they make room and space for it. And so we have to really challenge this idea that that somehow is not good for kids. And that, um, you know, I think that a lot of times when women become mothers, it feels antithetical to thinking of themselves as sexual beings, that somehow the sexuality would undermine the sort of innocence and safety of home life. And I just think that's a simple-minded way of thinking about our sexuality. Certainly, some expressions of sexuality can undermine innocence and goodness in home life. But what we really want is for our children to track that their parents are know how to use sexuality for goodness between them. And, you know, I was saying to my husband the other day, you know, that while our kids basically know nothing about the specifics of our relationship, they know a lot just by watching us in day-to-day -day interactions. And that is to say, they know that we're attracted to each other. They know that we like, uh, that we like each other. They know that we make space and time for our relationship that doesn't include them. And that all of that is good, very good for them to know. Um, excellent. Uh, I just have a quick follow-up question is, um, sure. how, you know, if, if you've been kind of conditioned to, you know, associate children knowing about you having sex with a lot of shame and embarrassment, um, any advice on how to transition into a healthier view? <laughs> I think that I would just try and reassure myself that there's no damage done in them knocking on the door and knowing that they're not invited. <laughs> you know, to just say to myself, like, that's actually good for them to know. 
it's good for them to know that married people can really enjoy one another and use their sexuality in this way, especially in a larger cultural environment that makes sex really all about sort of adolescent um, and premarital indulgence rather than a form of really loving and caring for a committed relationship. So while my kids aren't privy to the specifics, that's good for them. And just to sort of calm yourself down around that idea. Right. It really is good for them. I'm not just saying it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, what adolescent, what kids are trying to sort out, and I talk about this in my How to Talk to Kids About Sex course, is really as parents, we have to be good mentors of helping our children to know how to channel their sexuality in pro-social and loving ways, especially in an environment that um, commodifies it and um, exploits that natural part of being human. And so they really need to track in their parents that their parents put their money where their mouth is, that they're not just talking about how wonderful and sacred and all that, that they really do see their parents um, in an integrated relationship with their sexuality, that they are comfortable as sexual beings and comfortable in their relationship with their spouse. That's a huge gift to give a child, huge, because they can then navigate those messages and pressures outside of them with more clarity of an alternative that really they understand uh, instinctively because they've tracked it in their parents. You know, kids pick up on the messages of sexuality much more about what they intuit about their parents' sexual motivations and behavior than about what parents say about sexuality. You know, kids are tracking your motivations and behavior by age 11, right? They understand your sexual desires and motivations at age 11. They're tracking their parents quite well at that point. So you want them to track you in a healthy comfortable relationship with your sexuality and with one another excellent excellent all right uh let's move on to another question a lot of the questions that we get seem to be centered towards midlife or early marriage or pre-marriage and uh this one focuses on the latter part of marriage so the questioner wrote Where can I go to find help for coping and supporting a spouse dealing with erectile dysfunction? The ED started about a year ago. We are both in our early to mid-40s, and he has been to a doctor. Until a year ago, we enjoyed a happy, healthy, physical relationship. He is discouraged, and I am at a loss for how to help. I would love to find resources to guide both of us. And we actually had, I think, three different questions along these lines of, you know, some later in life, but basically, how do we deal with problems of aging, physical problems of aging? Right. So, um, so what I'm glad that, that this person is, they've gone to a doctor. I do think, you know, erectile dysfunction, when you were saying later in life, and then you said age 40, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's still pretty young, <laughs> right. um, at least for me, who's older than that. But, but, uh, I think that, um, Yeah. So first of all, I think ruling out and understanding there's lots of different causes for erectile dysfunction and, you know, it certainly is affected by poor health, you know, diabetes, high blood pressure, any kind of physical illness and so on. Um, Obesity is related to, um, of course, high blood pressure, but also lower testosterone levels and um, 
you know, any of those physical issues can definitely affect uh, erectile functioning, no matter how old you are. Of course, those issues tend to go up as you get older, tend to increase in likelihood as you get older. And then, of course, any medicines you're taking or substances that you might be using will also affect erectile functioning. So, um, so the, all of those are medically related and best assessed and treated by a doctor or a, um, a sex therapist that is focused on sex, sexual functioning. Um, the, the aspect that I tend to focus on more with couples once physical conditions have been ruled out or understood or addressed, because you can address, you know, I'll talk about that in a minute, but, but then a big cause can be stress and worry, um, and anger. So anxiety is a big factor in our physiological functioning sexually, both for women and men, for, for men, how it affects them, anxiety and stress. It affects, um, either delayed orgasm or difficulty, either premature ejaculation or delayed orgasm. So either can happen for men with lots of anxiety, but then also, of course, erectile dysfunction. And so, and then the other emotion that can affect it is anger. And I, the part that I tend to treat and look at is when you have anger in the relationship with a partner and anxiety and stress related to being in close connection with your spouse. So for this particular question, you know, this seems to have come up more recently. Uh, they have been to a doctor. So I don't, if, it, if they were sitting in my office, I would want to understand what the doctor thought might be medically related, if anything. Um, and then I would be very interested in sort of what the meanings are, what has been happening in the relationship or in uh, her husband's life in the last couple of years? Has there been more stress and anxiety outside of the relationship that's affecting him in the relationship? And then often what happens is that when somebody starts to um, experience ED, then especially for men who have a lot of performance pressure, you know, men are set up in our culture that they're supposed to be sort of, you know, always ready, sexual machines, essentially, that they're always ready to go. They're always able to perform if they're real men anyway. And so, of course, that's just completely false. And it's a mean <laughs> way to talk about men's sexuality because it doesn't allow men to be human and real. But of course, when one experiences ED, it can feel so humiliating to not be able to perform, quote unquote, to not be able to pleasure their spouse, that then their anxiety about that happening again makes it more likely to happen. And so really it's actually men in their 60s that are more likely to end the sexual relationship than the woman is because of this issue of feeling unable to perform and the ex feelings of exposure and vulnerability that will, can happen. So they'd rather just shut the relationship down than to feel so exposed. And, you know, I think the piece that I'm interested in that is, is, you know, if you're really going to be in a meaningful friendship with your spouse, you want there to be a lot of room to be human and you want, so, so first of all, you want there to be room to tolerate the ways that our bodies sometimes don't live up to what we want for women. There's more cultural room for that to be true. If you're anxious and you don't orgasm, uh, and that's a whole different episode we could have on women and orgasm, but 
but you know, if you don't orgasm and your anxiety is high, there's more cultural tolerance for a woman not orgasming. For men, there's much less. And so often what sex is for couples without them even really recognizing it internally is it's about performance. And for men, it can especially be that. It's about feeling, you know, it's not so much an act of intimacy as sort of demonstrating your prowess or your competence sexually. And what I think that I would want to address in a couple that came in with this issue is what is it, what is their physical relationship like? What is he experiencing internally when he is with his wife? Is there anger and resentments there? Is there um, anxiety that he's managing outside of the relationship? Is there anxiety within the relationship? And the short answer is the more that people can self-regulate while they are, and this is very much a schnarch idea, the more that people can self-regulate while they are in close proximity with their spouse, the more their body can function sexually. The sexual dysfunction happens in humans. We'll say it like this. Sexual dysfunction almost never happens in animals because they don't have the prefrontal cortex that we have to create meanings around their sexual relationship. So in you know dogs, for example, they just function sexually almost always with very rare exception because they can't think, you know, does she care about me? <laughs> does he think my thighs are fat? You know, dogs are never thinking things like that. And so it doesn't interfere with their biological functioning. Human beings attribute meanings and create anxieties and fears and self-doubts and so on and anger and resentments that undermine their sexual functioning. And so what I would be interested is to understand what may be creating those feelings or emotions that may be undermining with his physical, physiological functioning. Hmm. I think that one thing I was going to say, you know, there are, there are treatments just to speak, you know, a doctor will be able to answer this better, but there certainly are treatments for erectile dysfunction that a doctor can prescribe. Of course, everybody knows about Viagra. There is also uh, hormonal treatments, um, and then you can do, have health interventions, which is if you have high blood pressure, you're overweight, um, just exercise can be a good counter to erectile dysfunction just because of lowering um, uh, blood pressure, increasing blood flow, feeling better about yourself, lower stress, all of that. So regular exercise can definitely be a positive factor. And then the other thing I was going to say is that if you are the wife in this situation, I mean, I would say the number one response I would have is to try to not take it personally and to not let your anxiety go up too much in the face of it because that your he will track your anxiety and it will make him more anxious. Okay. So oftentimes if you're spouse if you're making out with your spouse and they don't seem to be aroused, okay to say, oh, it must be about me. He's not attracted to me. I am feeling kind of fat after all. It must be about me. And it probably has absolutely nothing to do <laughs> with your physical attractiveness. It may have something to do entirely unrelated to you. Um, and, and while I would, so I would say managing your own reactivity to that is valuable. But I would also say you do want to discern what's going on. I think you want to address it um, knowing that you're not shaming your spouse, 
but that you're discerning about what do you think it is about or what, you know, what can we do to address it? That we can go to a doctor, but what do you think is maybe happening between us or within you that's making it harder? And to be able to discern about what you think it is. So um, not having a reactive judgment, but more a judgment about what you think is happening and what might need to be addressed coming from the wiser part of you. And, you know, sometimes people, I've, you know, read lots of people who say that porn is definitely related to erectile dysfunction. And I don't know of any research on that. It, it very well could be. And that is to say that if you, many people who experience impotence or ED while they're with their spouse may well be able to achieve um, um, an erection and orgasm when they are with themselves. And that's not because they find uh, their partner unattractive or if they're looking at porn that their, that their spouse is inferior to the porn, but they don't have to manage the anxiety of the interpersonal exposure of sexuality with the spouse and that they're looking, and I'm not trying to validate this approach so much as say that a lot of times people are looking for a safer way psychologically to experience their sexuality and again, because we put a lot of pressure on men, that, that can become an easy way to tolerate or manage their resentments or their anger or their feelings of inferiority is to sort of distance themselves from the sexual exposure. Wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot. It just it makes me think that you're, this is probably not right, but your sex life in some ways is a barometer of your overall mental health and inner the quality of your relationship. Absolutely. It is. Yeah, it is because really to achieve a passionate marriage, in my opinion, to really have a really solid friendship and also a robust sexual relationship requires our development as people. It requires our ability to self-regulate, to manage ourselves, to be able to tolerate exposure and intimacy and, you know, very few of us actually want intimacy as in to say, like, I really want someone to really know me, all the worst in me, my inadequacies. We usually just want the best parts of us to be. Right. You know, yeah. And the knowable. Facebook parts. <laughs> exactly. The Facebook part. And it's hard to have Facebook sex. Well, maybe I shouldn't say it quite like that. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure there's people who have figured out how to do that. <laughs> but I mean, if you really want an intimate connection with somebody, you have to dare to be really knowable. And that takes courage and that takes the ability to accept ourselves. And that's paradoxically what is learning to do that is really fundamental to good sex. Interesting. Lots to think about. Okay, good. So, um, okay. So these are, these have been a lot of good questions and good thoughtful answers as usual. We get one type of question that comes up often and I imagine you get a lot of this at your seminars or, or emails or whatever, but it's like, is this okay? And then they give an example of a book or a website or a sex position or something that's like, is it okay that we're doing this? Is this pornography or is this erotica? Is erotica okay? Is porn okay? You know, a lot of right. these, um, can you validate my curiosity? Am I treading on, 
you know, safe ground or unsafe ground. Uh, what's your general response to those types of questions since they come up frequently? A lot. Well, yeah, and I think if you look at sort of previous episodes, I I think there's a couple of those questions that are in those um, earlier recordings. But my general response to that is that, well, first, that I think we're very much an authority-focused people, but not in a way that's theologically supported, meaning I think we like the idea of somebody above us telling us if something's okay or not, rather than what I think is another very important part of our theology, which is the idea that we have to discern for ourselves that we take true principles and we discern, we govern ourselves, we discern what we believe is true and right, because if we are going to become more godlike, we have to become wiser and we have to become more discerning about what cultivates goodness and what is truth and what forges our strength and what undermines it. And, you know, I'm not really in a position to tell people, yes, that's okay or no, that's not okay. Um, instead, I think of my, I mean, I can't take responsibility for people's choices or the effect that it has on their relationship or on themselves. My position is more helping people think about what choices can they are, are a function of their integrity or that they can live with. I think another challenge is that we have the idea, I think, that we've inherited unwittingly is that good sex or sex between good people is kind of sterile, kind of, uh, you know, a little passion, but not too much passion. Um, and I think that that's just a kind of false idea of goodness. It's, 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 it expresses our anxiety about sexuality and our anxiety about eroticism. And instead, I think good marital sexuality is high depth, high meaning, and high passion, and high eroticism. And so what that requires, as I referenced in the first part of the podcast, is sort of the willingness to know and be known erotically to let your erotic mind be more knowable to yourself and to your spouse. And so how that plays into what you either read or, or experience together or, you know, enjoy together is really what the question is. I think that drives whether or not it's good is whether or not it increases your sense of knowledge of one another and your sense of connection to one another, your sense of really knowing and being known, or if it distracts you from one another, if it's used to distract you from your relationship, if it's used to basically serve self-serving purposes and desires, um, if it's there in a way that is selfish and pressures the other person towards accommodating the worst in you, I would say, it's probably not good. Okay. It's not going to be good for the relationship, not good for you. Um, and probably what would make it unworthy if it creates more, um, curiosity about your spouse, more interest in sexuality with one another, if it creates more of a sense of bonding and depth and a, a sense of really having something together that you share, 
and that you understand about each other and that you share as a couple, then it's probably good. And so I think you just have to bring your wisest self, which is not the self that's looking for someone else to tell you if it's okay, but the self that is willing to really take responsibility for your sexual relationship and for creating a meaningful and good one and thinking about what cultivates that for the two of you and not using it to not using that to justify the worst in you, (laughs) the indulgent or selfish part of you, but the part of you that wants to create something meaningful and strong. So it means you, you discern what that is for you as a couple. Excellent. Well, there, that's, that's not an easy out. And it shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, it um, shouldn't be that. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you both Jennifer and Laurel for participating in the podcast, asking and answering the questions. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there you are. One more installment for you in the most popular series on the Rational Faith podcast, the Ask the Mormon Sex Therapist series. And as always, you can submit your own questions for Jennifer to answer by emailing askdrfife at rationalfaiths.com. That's A-S-K-D-R-F-I-F-E at rationalfaiths.com. You can also leave a question in the comment section in the show notes. As for next week, we'll be bringing you a little fun update. I might have mentioned this last week, but we had to get the sex therapist episode in. So as a reminder for the dedicated listeners, I'll talk with Laurel and Thomas about the success of the Leahona Children's Foundation fundraiser and talk about some future podcast projects for this next, for this year, for 2016. So thank you all for listening and hanging out. And until next time, keep keeping it weird.